I'm Collier Landry, subject of the investigation discovery documentary A Murder in Mansfield. On New Year's Eve 1989, I awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of two loud thuds. The next morning, my mother was missing, but I knew she was no longer alive. No one believed me except one detective. And 25 days later, police found my mother's body buried beneath the basement floor of my father's new home he purchased for his mistress. I had witnessed a murder. And at the age of 12, I testified against my father at his months-long murder trial. He is still incarcerated to this day. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Today's episode is my story, part two, the next day. So here we go. Here we go. All right, so Brenda, where where do we leave off? Well, I think we talked a little bit towards the end of the last episode. We were talking about what a great kid you were and how great your your mom was and how she kept you on your toes and in check and making sure that your moral compass was pointed in the right direction. I was a wonderful child because of my mother. Let's just keep that for what it is. But yeah, she definitely set the moral compass. So I believe that we were talking about when I was in the hospital room getting the breathing treatment from Dr. Behe and my principal, Lynn Ringerbach, who had just become my foster parent, had told me that Lieutenant Messmore found my mother, eternally long pause, and she was dead. So that's where we left off. All right. So I left the hospital that day. And then I think actually, I guess we did cover this when I went back to my school that day. They were having a Chinese New Year celebration. I went to a private school called Discovery School, very small class that I was in, had lots of friends. And one of the benefits of that is we got to do really cool things and really cultural things. And my mother really wanted to do Chinese New Year, so she set this entire celebration up and then wasn't there. (laughs) Right. And there were a lot of people there. Kind of sounded like they were celebrating on her behalf, even though they knew, I think people were starting to know what, what was going on. and so. Well, people people knew what was going on because it had been, as I had said in the last episode, everyone knew that my mother was found dead except for me because it was front headline of the paper, which is why when I was talking in the last episode at the hospital, they ushered me past the honor box That's and I didn't right, see it. So that you couldn't take a look at the newspaper. Exactly. So... I was sort of the last to know. I mean, rightfully so, I suppose. But yeah, the whole school, everybody was in tears and my classmates, and it was a celebration that was happening and nobody was really celebrating. Wasn't it kind of funny, though, that you were the one who drove the investigation. You're the one who was telling everyone that you knew that she wasn't alive anymore. And then at the end, they act like you need to be shielded from this knowledge. That to me is... It's so funny how adults are with kids. Like, you can't handle it when you were the strongest person in the whole bunch, you know, driving this train. Sure. I think that, you know, it's it's sort of a double-edged sword. It's a tough situation for everyone because you don't really know how to handle it. We as adults really don't know how to handle something that dramatic. I mean, this was a 
body of a woman that everyone loved found in another state underneath the basement floor of a house that my father purchased with his mistress who forged part of her signature on a document to buy the house. We later find out in court, of course. Right. So I don't think anyone knew how to handle it. And I was really sick with asthma, so I don't even know if they wanted to they thought I was going to have like a worse asthma attack and stop breathing or what that was. That day I remember, and in the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, we revisit with a doctor named Dennis Maricus. And he was, for lack of a better description, like a first responder to the school that came to talk to myself and my other classmates and other kids in the school to kind of sort of help navigate the waters of the traumatic event. You know, we bring him in the documentary. We kind of, you know, we discuss that in the film. But he was the first person I talked to, and he was really kind of trying to check in with me. And I remember in that office, which was my principal's office, Lynn Riggenbach at Discovery School, I was sitting there thinking, I think I told him if I could have the Back to the Future time machine, mm-hmm. that's what I wanted so I could save my mother. Aww. Yeah, it was pretty... That's pretty amazing. It was pretty tough, though. I'm almost positive that I didn't stay at school much longer that day, and I remember going back to my principal, Lynn Ringenbach's house, because I was staying there because they were going to end up being my foster parents for the time being, before the whole fiasco starts. I remember I, I really wanted to talk to Dave Messmore, and as we also discover in the film, Dave... As exhausted as he was, staying up four and a half hours away from Mansfield in Erie, Pennsylvania, excavating my mother's body, he knew that he had to come talk to me and sit with me because for the previous 25 days-ish, it was him and I. So on that you know afternoon, evening of January 25th, 1990, he came to see me and he, I asked, I, you know, I asked him questions like, how did she look? Did she look like she was at peace? I mean, yeah. And I know that sounds strange because everybody listening to this is going to go, oh, well, of course, she doesn't look like she's at peace. She was murdered. Yes. But these are the things that you go through and you, when you are trying to come to grips with something that is this tragic and dramatic and such, an, you know, it's, a, it's like my whole life had just changed in the blink of an eye. And even though I knew in my heart that my mother was dead, just asking things like that made me feel better that she was maybe, you know, she was murdered, but she was still sleeping and she was just, you know, just died that way. Right. These sort of fantasy things of like, oh, the person got shot, but they didn't know they got shot, right? And you think about these things. You just hope they didn't suffer. You hope that they didn't suffer and all this. And as we come to find out in the film, when you watch it, again, A Murder in Mansfield... That was probably not the case. Right. Which is really, it's always been a tough thing for me to deal with. It has, yeah. And there's a scene, not going to give a spoiler alert, but where I am looking at the case file with Dave Messmore in the film 25, 26 years later. And coming to grips with some of those things that I had feared and seeing photographs and things like that. So, right. but you'll have to watch the film. Yeah, so that was the first question I asked him was, did she look like she had peace? Was she okay? I think he said yes. You know, she was, you know, she was dead, but 
But then he sort of, you know, he told me about the tarp and how she was, he's like, remember that tarp you talked about? And I said, yes. And he said she was wrapped up in that tarp and, you know, she was buried underneath the basement and all of this. And, and he described to me as much as a, I believe he was 42, 43 years old, so around my age, trying to explain this to, you know, 11, soon to be 12-year-old boy that how he found his mother. He was very gentle and very you know, careful with his words. I mean, Dave is a pretty soft-spoken guy to begin with. Wonderful human, obviously. But, you know, he did his best to really, I don't know if placate the situation is the right word. That's probably not. He did the best to sort of disarm me and, and to make me feel at peace, which was amazing because it was a relief for me because he could tell that I knew it was 25 long days that I knew and I finally had my answer, or so I thought. And you needed that. You needed that, I guess, somewhat closure to what had happened because I know there was probably still a part of you that didn't want to believe that any of it was happening, but you knew it was and you you needed to know that there was some sort of end to this. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you get that, okay, this is how it happened. Okay, she's dead. You get that closure. But that Closure only opens up other doors in your right. mind and who you are. But I think at the same time, it does give you at least a little bit of a springboard into the trauma work that you're going to have to deal with that lies ahead of you. Right. And I say in my TED Talk, talking about this what's next or what now, going into that mode instead of the questioning why this happened, why, 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 when you move into the, okay, let's take action. When you move into that action mode with trauma, I feel personally, it ultimately leads you through it. And for me, my what now began right then when I found out about my mom, that she was actually dead. Okay, now my father. Right. I knew it was him. Okay, now let's go get this bastard. <laughs> right. And I think that my next action was, okay, I had to testify at the grand jury, which was probably like, so this was January 25th. I would, I think it was January 30th or 31st by the time I testified at the grand, it wasn't in February, I'm almost positive. So it was the end of January when I was testifying in front of the grand jury for the indictment and arraignment for my father on the murder charge. I very quickly realized that and I know police realize that, and Dave Messmore realized this as why he wouldn't let me go with my father to Florida because I would have, you know, ended up drowning in a horrible accident or something like that. But I was the main witness. They didn't have anything but circumstantial evidence. And for me to be able to testify against my father, and I have a really, really good memory for details. Yes, you do. It's very interesting because I think defense attorneys and my father, being a narcissist and a sociopath that he is, really underestimated me. I think that he thought I wouldn't say anything. And the fact that I was leading that charge of, no, this guy's going to prison. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I think we were talking on your other podcast the other week. I was talking to a woman who her sister was murdered. And it was an extremely high-profile case in the early to mid-'90s in the United States and really around the world involved a very famous man who was accused and there was a very ch famous chase scene. Anyways, the first thing she said to me when I was speaking to her is, she goes, I can't believe 
that they had you testify because she had, which she was telling me, had done her best to make sure that the children of the victim and the perpetrator did not have to go to court and testify because she felt it was so traumatic. And by the way, it is. Right. It's not a fun thing. <laughs> it is not a fun thing at all. And as easy as it may appear, or I'm making snarky comments or jokes on the witness stand, of the, oh, look who's here, it's Sherry, and all these things. Ah! At the same time, it's absolutely horrific to look at your father and go, you murdered my mother, yep. and I'm going to put you in prison. Like, nobody wants that. That's not a fun thing. For- <laughs> right, and especially for a kid, you know? I mean, my whole life was thrown into upheaval. So th- this woman was, was shocked by the fact that that... She had thought they forced me to testify, and I said, no, that's not true. There was no way in hell I wasn't going to testify. Testifying to that grand jury and finally, you know, what ended up being my father's, you know, sequential arraignment from that testimony is what's, where it all started, I guess, with the putting the wheels of justice in motion. And you were the only person that could have done that. You were the only one that could have been an advocate for her. And you just kept pushing until you got you you found her. And you know, I, I've talked about this before that it just downs me that a twelve year old kid is the one who solved this and then you went on the stand and testified and put your dad away. And you know, no one else could have done that. No one else had the knowledge and had the drive to do it. There was no one else standing up for her. Well, except for Dave Messmore. Well, but it was the basically detect- the two right. of us. However, you know, my mother's friends, Margie Timperman, Nancy Sorella, Mina Behe, Shelley Bowden, they all were constantly bugging the papers and the police department about this woman wouldn't have left her kids. So it wasn't just me. It was when I was making these statements, as I came to find out in pre-production and making the film A Murder in Mansfield, I came to find out that not only with, with me saying it, but their dedication to, like, this woman wouldn't have left her child. She's not like that. There's no way something is amiss. This is not a missing person's case. It corroborated my story, really allowed detectives like Lieutenant Messmore to have a basis to go after search warrants, to go after my father. Because, again, as he explained, the the police chief at the time, Captain Carnes, he did not want to. He was like, what are you doing? This is a doctor. Do you know we can get sued? We can do this? There was a lot of pushback from the department. And Captain Carnes did not want Dave Messmore to embarrass the department. Wow. And and I, when I talked to Dave in interviews and I have a great, fantastic interview, a side note. A couple of years ago, I went back and shot a year ago. I went back and filmed pre-COVID a great interview with Dave Messmore. And we filmed it at the Ohio State Reformatory, which is in Mansfield, Ohio, which was in one of my all-time favorite movies directed by Frank Darabont, shot by Roger Deakins because I'm a DP, A Shawshank Redemption. Nice. And The Shawshank Redemption is just a fantastic film. So we are actually in the prison sitting at a table with the corridors of cells behind us. It was was really cool. Dave was telling me how the police chief, Captain Cards, essentially said, if you if nothing comes of this and you get these search warrants, you're done. Like basically his job was on the line. He was literally holding on to the word of a soon to be 12 year old child that this is what happened. And you had that moment of we were right. Yeah, and then you have that. So I'm sitting with Dave, and he's telling me all of this. And yes, I am having that moment of, look, this is what we thought. <laughs> right. Wish it wasn't the case. Wish it was a happy ending. 
So as a 12-year-old where you're sitting there going, so suck it, I was right. No. Never had that. <laughs> I don't Never. know if I was so suck it. No. I was too overwhelmed with grief. Yeah. And I, the interesting thing is when you go through something like that, you have this sort of, yeah, I mean, I guess you have this, oh, your vindication. Right. Oh, look, I was right, but you don't want to be right. You don't want to be right. Nobody but... wants to be right. But everyone thought you were, you know, crazy and overdramatic, I'm sure. And your dad, you know, would have, you know, done anything to keep you from. Well, that's for sure. My father would have done anything to keep me quiet. Yeah. Except for not drive to Erie every day, four and a half hours away to bury a body. Yeah. (laughs) Well, priorities. Priorities. You know, that was the, I was a, you know, a backseat priority at that time. And it's interesting, Mike, when I'm talking about this right now. And I'm thinking about those days, those 25 days of not knowing where she is. And my father literally going off and burying the body and coming home every night or going to his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell's house, but still coming back into my orbit. The dangerous situation that I put myself in with that, because I was already afraid of my father growing up because Mm -hmm. he was a very violent person and he was six foot three. You know, I'm a kid. Like, you know, he would have kicked my ass. We know this. But- the fact that my father was coming back and and I was sneaking off calling police, sneaking off at school, talking to Dave Messmore, talking to my mom's friends, helping add momentum and, and gasoline on this fire. I think about it now as an adult of how naive I was <laughs> to do this, but I don't think I cared at that time. I don't think I cared if I got caught because I knew what I was doing was right. And I don't think... Or maybe perhaps it did in a way where I did realize that the gravity of the situation was really serious with my father and that he was capable of doing anything because my mother had told me, and I don't know if I talk about this in the documentary, but my mother had told me about two months before she was killed that she was afraid that my father would kill her. Wow. And she said, "If honey, if I ever disappear, your father did something to me. Your father had me killed or your father is, you know... She talked about my father having mafia connections and this, that, and the other. And I don't know what that is. I, that's what I heard. That's what I was told by my mother. I, don't, I can't add any validity to that right. one way or the other. So I'm not even going there. But she was afraid. And she specifically told me. And I can remember where I was. For all these people that listen, I was on Hanley Road. We were driving to Bob Evans where I liked to go eat with my mom after school. And she was telling me this. And I, yeah. I think back about that now where I was in that situation and the gravity of the situation, the stakes are so high, but I just didn't care. Or I was just so naive. I was like, I, you know, I just, or I was so obsessed about, I have to find my mother. I have to find my mother. I have to find my mother that I didn't care about the ramifications. And obviously the juice was worth the squeeze because the outcome as horrific as it is for all parties. My father has been incarcerated for 31 years now. Right. And just recently in the last Well, yeah, and, few and months. his parole, his right. second attempt at parole got rejected, but he gave him another five years. So he has been incarcerated for 31 years. So, again, this is something that I felt really passionate about with a murder in Mansfield and why I wanted to tell the story is at the end of the day, yes, there's quote unquote justice, right? The victim is dead, but the bad guy goes to jail The state is going to get its restitution. The gavel hits and we say next. But we don't really examine precisely how bad this is for everyone involved. Right. Because 
Here's my mother who is taken from me. Here's me losing both parents now. And then there's my father who has been locked up for 31 years, an educated man that could have done so many amazing things with his life as a doctor or as a healer. And one of the things the prosecutor said in his opening statements, James Mayer Jr. said, is he was a healer by day and a killer by night. And that really stuck with everyone in the jury. That really stuck with everyone. And it's just, it's, it doesn't make any sense at the end of the day. And of course, we say that and we can't really justify it because we'll never understand. But the, the bottom line is, it's bad for everyone. Right. <laughs> you never get away with it, even with yourself. You get away with it. You don't ever get caught doing something like this. You still live with it in yourself. And there are people, like my father is a sociopath, I believe, that do not live like that with guilt and shame or fear of being caught because it doesn't even occur to them. No. They're, so, just, they're too selfish and they just don't think that the rules are made for them. Or on top of that, they're just not wired that way. Right. I remember in the film when we filmed the scene, spoiler alert, but in the film A Murder in Mansfield, we filmed this scene with my father in prison. And I'll talk about this on another podcast of how all that came about because that in itself is insane. But I remember after the whole thing plays out and he leaves the room, I'm literally trembling because I just... I said to my director, Barbara Koppel, and my producer, John Morrissey, and David Cassidy, I said, somebody please tell me I'm not related to that man. Please tell me that my blood, that his blood doesn't really course my veins. Because I, at that moment, realized that you grow up hearing all these stories, and let's just take it back to history, right? You hear about obviously what the horrors that happened to uh, the Jews in World War II. You hear about the horrors of Pol Pot and the Khmer uh, Rouge and the Contras in, in Nicaragua and things like that, or the the ethnic cleansing by Slobodan Milosevic in Bosnia-Herzegovina, or is it Serbia? Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, they're like right there next to each other. We all know what we're talking about, right? <laughs> and then there's Croatia, which is supposedly really beautiful. Anyway, I digress. But you hear about people like this that make these decisions that just, you just go, what? okay, they must have come from a bad place. They must have been abused as a child. There was something horrific must have happened to them to justify this behavior. Even killers, John Wayne Gacy, Charlie Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer. And you go, okay, they must have been so effed up as a kid right? that something happened to them. They were raped, beaten, but no. There are just, I can tell you I've stared evil in the face, dead in the eyes many times in my life. I can tell you with 100% certainty that some people are just born that way. That's frightening, isn't it? Scary. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Terrifying. Oh boy. Well, that took a Left turn, didn't it? <laughs> kind of did. <laughs> well, anyways, Dave Messmore tells me all this stuff. We kind of, we have that moment. You know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't hysterical. I remember I wasn't like a hysterical kid crying that I can't believe this. It was a focused, just sadness. I mean, I was crying, don't get me wrong. But I wasn't, it was grounded in like, okay, what needs to happen now? What's going to happen to me and my sister? What is going to happen to my life? Am I going to get a new mommy and daddy? Am I going to, where's my dog? Like, they took my dog. <laughs> where, where, or am I, is life ever going to be normal again? Are we ever going to be able to go out without masks? 
Oh, sorry, wrong deck. <laughs> no, but seriously, in in all seriousness, it's you 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 like these thoughts just come cascading down your mind, and you just it just starts racing. But the main thought was, how do I make sure that this man that I call my father is never going to walk free again? And that became my obsession for the next six months until the trial. So a couple of days later, I had to go testify in front of the grand jury. And I remember it was my former school principal, Virginia Imhoff, who was the head of the grand jury. And I remember her taking me aside and saying, your mother would be so proud of you. You're such a courageous young man for doing what you did after testifying to the grand jury. Because I just told them the truth. Because at the end of the day, that is the easiest thing to remember. And, you know, my father never learned that, that lesson of being honest and telling the truth. And, you know, look where it got him. So you testified for the grand jury. Then what happened? So they had a... So one of the hardest things to sort of reconcile in this situation is because I was the quote-unquote main witness or star witness or whatever you want to call it, I was not allowed to go to my mother's funeral, which my Aunt Carol, which is her sister, had arranged for in Baltimore, Maryland, to be buried along with her, my mother's mother and father in the same cemetery. And my mother couldn't be cremated, which was her wish, because of evidence and things like that, which we'll go over another time. So I wasn't able. So we had a memorial service, and my Aunt Carol had flown out to Mansfield, and my mother's friends, Margie Timperman, who was like her best friend in Mansfield, Nancy Sorella, Mina Behe, my Aunt Shelley, uh, Shelley Bowden picked my aunt up from the airport in Columbus and brought her up to Mansfield. And we were having this, you know, they had this sort of, I don't know what you call it, meet and greet at the house, at Margie Timberman's house, to my best friend growing up at that time was her son, Tony. So I was over there hanging out with them a lot. And my aunt came. We had this, like, you know, I'm sure we had food and everything like that. And then they had right. a memorial service at a church called Resurrection Parish, which is in Lexington, Ohio. I remember, I think the song they picked is The Wind Beneath My Wings. I remember that playing. And I remember they played it at these church services because I ended up going to that church with my foster parents because that's where they belonged. Right. But I remember that was like The Wind Beneath My Wings. It was Bette Midler that sung that, right? Right. And then there was another song she did. I can't remember. But every time I hear that song, it's a great song. It's been an inspiration to a lot of people. I effing hate it. like Because all it reminds me is that that memorial service and everything so i'm not into it <laughs> yeah i can imagine and i never heard the song before until then yeah. funny how music can really shape a memory for you absolutely and i'm sure bet is sorry that that song brings you bad memories it's okay it's okay. we love bet yes yes we do i don't know where i was going with that. <laughs> so anyways we had this memorial service at resurrection parish for my mother it was very sort of strange, but, you know, a huge outpouring for the community came out. And so this was probably, you know, end of 29th, 30th, 31st, February 1st, 2nd, something like that in Mansfield where we had this thing. And then that's when the, the circus, the fiasco, I don't know what you want to call it. I think the circus is a great way to describe what would unfold over the next four and a half months, five months through my father's trial because the stories that came out of the woodwork were just something else. Wow. But I think we should save that for another episode. All right. I'm Collier Landry. I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. 
For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.